You're listening to the City Lights Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. We have a seven and a half month old little girl named Nora. My wife, Emily, and I, we just love her to death. She's incredible. She's a beautiful little girl. Uh, seven and a half months is a nice age, too. She's starting to talk, and by talk, I mean bad, 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 bad. That's all she does all the time. We like to think she's saying mama and dada. She's not looking at us when she says it, but we're counting it. We're going to write it down that way. Um, but with it being Father's Day, I, I did want to talk a little bit about being a dad, and because, like I said, I've been a dad for seven and a half months, I have a lot of experience and wisdom, so if you guys need anything, Please see me after service. I'm really great with marriage and really great with parenting, so just hit me up. But no, I I wanted to talk today because uh, in this series where we're going to talk about faith with the book of Hebrews, uh, the the scripture I'm going to talk about covers this word, and it's a pretty scary word, and the word is fear. And as I started thinking about this idea of fear, like when am I scared, when am I fearful, the first thing I thought of was when uh, Emily and I found out we were pregnant. And I remember that was one of the first feelings. I'm sitting there looking at this little stick and going, okay, all right, because marriage, it's like, this is another adult, we can do this together, but then, oh, here's a, here's a child who, who knows nothing about life, who, who doesn't even know how to walk, who doesn't know how to talk, and you have to teach them all that stuff. Uh, here's a, a huge responsibility, and I'll never forget that day. Um, Emily and I, before we were married, we started working at a coffee shop together, and um, if you want to get a good idea of marriage, and if you want to strengthen your marriage, go work a job together. Um, you start to figure out who's the real boss in the relationship. I realized fast it wasn't me, um, which is great. My wife is a very intelligent woman, but she's also a very strong woman, and I learned that quickly working a job with her. Um, but in that job, I remember we got married, and about a month later, um, I just noticed Emily started acting just different, and not in a bad different, but just didn't seem herself. There seemed to be something different. I would make these jokes. like She even said she was feeling kind of funny, and I would just make these jokes like, oh, you're, you're pregnant right? That's what you are. And she'd be like, don't, don't speak that over me. That's not funny. Come on, don't do that. And I'd be like, okay, whatever. But I was just kidding. Didn't think it, didn't believe it. But I'll continue making these jokes. And then about three weeks um, after we had been married, I looked at her. I was coming out of the kitchen at the coffee shop cleaning dishes, and she was, in the, she was at the coffee bar making a drink, and I saw the, the glow. You guys know the glow, right? Where you see a woman who's pregnant, and they're just radiating. And I saw that on her, and I believe it was the Holy Spirit, but I got this clue in my heart about, hey, man, I think she's pregnant for real. I'm not kidding this time. And so I, like, went up to her. I said, hey, uh, are you sure you're not, you're not pregnant? And she was like, I don't think so, no. But I kept thinking about it, and then she started thinking about it, and then next thing you know, we're at CVS, and then next thing you know, we're headed home, and we're just dreading this. I mean, just you don't know what to expect in that moment. I think a lot of us have been there. You're just like, okay, how's this going to go? So we get home, Emily goes in the bathroom. She comes out, and then there's that, what's supposed to be two minutes, but it feels like three hours where you're waiting on this little stick to give you the news, and I remember just watching those little dots, boop. It felt like three hours. I said, if, if, if this isn't going to happen, can you just take me now, Lord? I, I don't want to sit here and wait anymore. And finally, after two minutes, three years, it says pregnant, and it pops up. Now, if any of you know me, I'm a little bit of an introvert. I tend to internally process my feelings and my emotions. I don't communicate them very well. 
And so what's going on in my head is not what's going on outside. Um, Sydney Ann, who used to work here with us, and she still comes here to this church, but she, uh, she says it's like the duck. The duck's on top of the water. They look cool and smooth, but underneath their, pe- their feet are just like freaking out. That's me and my brain on the inside. So this, this word pops up pregnant, and I'm just, I think my eyes got kind of big, and I'm sitting there thinking, okay. And Emily's an external processor, of course, the exact opposite. So she's like, oh, how are you feeling? I'm feeling this. And I'm just like, I just want to go into a box, and I don't know what to do after that. But I just said, hey, just give me a minute. I just need a second just to process what's going on. I don't know how to feel right now. I don't know where I'm at. And so as a musician that I am, I pick up my guitar, and I just start plucking away on the couch, and I just start thinking. I remember the first thing I felt was an immense amount of pressure. And with it being Father's Day, I do want to talk to dads for a second and to men, but we tend to feel that kind of pressure, right? And it's not just with being a dad, but it's being a husband. It's with being an employee. Uh, it can be as a son. It can be as, as anything. We, we feel this pressure to be great, to perform well. Uh, we want to be affirmed by people that we're doing well. And it's not that just we want to think highly of ourselves, but at times as men, we can't function unless we have that that sort of affirmation, knowing that we're doing well. And that, and that was the pressure that came to me immediately. And it wasn't just as a man, but growing up without a father, I said, I mean, am I just going to be like my dad growing up? Or am I going to be better? And, and then thinking, I want to do well, and, and, and I want to raise this child well, and, and I want her to know I love her, and I want to be there. And then just immediately started pushing myself so hard, all within like 30 seconds. And I felt so heavy, I felt so defeated, and I felt so fearful of what was to come. And there was no excitement about a child coming. There was no joy about being able to raise, some, raise a child. You know, there's, there's a certain joy about having a baby, and I didn't feel that. But then very quickly, what started to happen, which, which I appreciated so much, was uh, I, I finally made the decision. You know, either I can sit here and just internalize my thoughts, or I can go to the Lord and say, Lord, can you, can you help me figure this whole thing out? And I did do that. I said, Lord, I, I am terrified. <laughs> I don't want to be a bad father. You know, getting married, I already had those doubts about, I don't, I don't want to be a bad husband. I don't want to be a bad dad. I want to be a great father. But I'm scared. And immediately the Lord told me to do one thing. He just said, hey, let's look back for a second. And, and he walked me through all these moments in my life where, where he's provided, where he's been faithful, and where he's taught me something, where he's grown me, where he's done something so miraculous that I couldn't comprehend or understand. And he said, do you remember me doing all those things? And I said, yeah. He said, I'm about to do the same thing right now if you'll let me. And I felt such a, just a, a weight just leave my body. And I, I put down my guitar, and I immediately started weeping. I was like, I was like I'm so excited, <laughs> losing it. But, but it just went away. And I thought from that moment, oh, this is going to be great. But what I noticed was over the next nine months, and then for the past seven and a half, those pressures still come about. The fears still come out that I'm not going to be good enough. The fears come out that I'm not raising my daughter well. The fear and the, and the doubt thinking, like, maybe she doesn't know that I love her. Maybe she doesn't think that I'm here. Maybe I'm at work too much. Maybe I don't do this enough. Maybe I'm not this. Maybe I'm not that. And, and all of these moments have happened over time. And, and finally, even coming here with Hebrews 11, I've started to discover that it's all about fear. And so what I love about this morning, the first thing is I was thinking about this idea of fear. 
It's a very common passage that we know, but, but the Lord has really been speaking to me, not just this morning, not just this week, but for the past, goodness, year and a half, I guess. This passage right here, this is Matthew 11. We're all familiar with it, but if we could take the, the idea that we know the scripture and let's, let's look at it with fresh eyes, with a fresh mind. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30 says this, come to me. This is Jesus speaking. He says, come to me right here in the beginning. Come to me. It's what I did in that moment where I felt the worst playing my guitar. I, I, I went to him instead of going to my own thoughts, going to my own whatever. I, I, I went to the Lord. It was the first thing I did. All of you who labor and are heavy laden, pressure. And this isn't just men. Ladies, we're all, we've all been here. I know like Emily as a mother, good grief. I mean, I think I have pressure on me. Like she's the real MVP in this relationship because it's not just being a parent either. It's not just being a wife or a husband. All of us, we feel, we feel pressure. We, we have fears about things. We doubt ourselves. We, we doubt those around us. And so I don't want just the dads to hear this, but all of us in this room, we're all, we all labor and we're all heavy laden. Even this morning, we're heavy laden with, with life. It's, and it's not just parenting. It's not just friendships. It's just life. Life is hard. Jesus says that. You will have trouble in this life. But Jesus is speaking to us specifically who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This isn't just sleep, but this is a Psalm 23 kind of rest where you're lying down, where he makes you lie down in green pastures. He causes us to rest when we just come to him. It doesn't say do anything else. It just says, come to me, and I will give you rest. Just show up to the conversation, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. He's a gentle God. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus calls us to turn to him to cast our cares upon him because he cares about us. So this morning, as we're going to be talking about things like fear and about faith, I wanted to begin by just eliminating the pressure on all of us in this room, that you don't have pressure to be anything but the child of God that you are. That as you walk throughout this life, we're called to walk alongside God. He's not tugging us or he's not in front of us pointing and telling us what to do, but he's walking with us. It's an easy walk. It's a light walk. The difficulty we find in life, we we usually put it on ourselves. Usually we lose sight of what he says about us. We lose sight about the things that he thinks about us because we've turned away from what we know to be true. When Jesus went to the cross, he carried everything, including us. Jesus on the cross didn't just die for sin. He didn't just go up there to make make bad people good, but I heard someone say one time, he he went there to, to make dead people come to life. He restores our soul this morning. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for our anxiety. He died for our stress. He died for our past, and he died for our future. He died so that we wouldn't have to carry this pressure of being a good dad, or being a good wife, or being a good daughter, or being a good friend, or being a good employee. He he died for all those things. That doesn't say that we should just not try, but we get to try freely. We get to do things well freely. I get to want to be a good dad to Nora, and I can't tell you how much more fun that is. 
than feeling like I'm not going to amount up, that one day she's going to regret something, that, that one day she's going to look at me and feel like I didn't do a good job, that I failed. The bottom line is that I'm going to. But Jesus died for that. Amen? We find peace in the finished work of Jesus. And like I said before, Psalm 23 is carried out in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We're able to find that peace in his life. That's what he laid down. And when the Holy Spirit fell and we become the receivers of that Holy Spirit, we receive that rest. We enter into that rest. As Taylor was sharing earlier, we don't have to come scared or come as trespassers into his presence. We get to come into his presence boldly because we deserve that spot, because Jesus earned it. And life is the same way. Being married is the same way. Having kids, being in relationships, just doing life is the same way. We just have to stop putting the pressure on ourselves. So like Oliver said earlier, this is a series called One Faith. We're in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. And, and this whole chapter is called by, by a lot of scholars and Christians in, in general as the Hall of Faith. It's this large chapter that's just full of these names of, of Old Testament characters and their stories and how they've been written down in the Hall of Faith. They're known for their faith. And uh, Oliver talked about Cain and Abel last week. And Abel is one of those names. And the next name that comes up is Noah. And I think we're all familiar with Noah's story, and we're going to go through that here in a moment. But as we've been talking about Hebrews, Oliver and I have had this um, idea that we're going to dismiss myths, um, that there's actually lies that I think, even within Scripture, the enemy can come in and he can say something to us that twists our view of truth, and we figure out after a while that we're not listening to truth anymore, but we're actually listening to a lie. And as I was reading this passage, I, I heard something very specific um, from the Lord as I was like, Lord, what's, what's the lie here? Not that there's lie in the scripture, but if I were reading this, what, what is the lie that I'm believing about potentially what I'm reading, what I'm hearing? And this is a very interesting concept, but that line is that there is no fear in faith. And I said, Lord, like that doesn't make any sense. Like there isn't any fear in faith. Like you said, to, you said yourself, Lord, like love casts out all fear, right? Like Fear has no place here. All that stuff. We, we sing songs about it. You know, I'm no longer a slave to fear. Things like that. And I said, Lord, that can't be true. But he said, what makes you think it's not true? Because as we're going to read here in a moment, we're going to read about a man who was full of fear and became known as a man who goes down to the hall of faith. It's one of the most faithful men of all time in all of history. And that this morning is what I'm, I'm trying to break and, and not say that's completely not true, but I want to open our minds and, and challenge our thought because though God is, is, the, he is the, the, the embodiment of absolute truth, we as humans, we, we can't grasp absolute truth. We can't grasp all that God is. That's why you can read a passage, passage like seven different times and get seven different things out of it. So this morning, the idea I want us to get onto and hopefully start to just a breakdown a little bit is that there is no fear in faith. Because for me, I believe in the contrary, that there can be fear in the midst of our faith. I believe that God can use our faith to move us, or our fear to move us forward towards faith. That we can be afraid, that we can be scared, and that God will move us forward. That there's something about approaching your fear, dealing with your fear, that propels you forward. Because we can't always just walk in and say, hey, perfect love casts out fear, so I'm not scared anymore. That's not going to work. That's called pushing things back, and that's called pushing things into the back of your soul and not dealing with it as internal processors do, and then blowing up. 
having a breakdown at some point because you didn't deal with that fear. But when we approach fear, we look fear in the eyes and we deal with that fear, that's when God moves us towards faith. God uses our fear to move us towards that faith. So I was looking up this word fear, and there is, there's over eight nouns in the Bible for the word fear. And that is insane. I was like, well, how can there be eight different definitions for the word fear? And there's over 10 verb forms for the word fear. And I was like, I can't go through all that this morning. That's crazy. We'd be here till like Tuesday trying to go over all these words about fear. But this morning, we're going to look at just two forms of this word fear. And I'm going to show you, and hopefully you guys can join me in understanding the difference and, and, and how fear can be used by God and how fear is required by God. These are two different things we're going to talk about. But we'll start with the, the passage we're here to talk about, Hebrews 11, chapter 7. It's where we're going to be today. If you guys have a Bible, it's Hebrews 11, chapter 7, or verse 7, sorry. This is what it says. It says, by faith, Noah... Being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Before we move forward, I just want to talk about that second part of the verse. Uh, this is just a, a side comment, just to sort of clarify where we're coming from, what the scripture is trying to say. When it says, by this, he condemned the world. Noah didn't hold the keys of judgment in his hand. He didn't sit on the seat with the gavel and say, all right, I'm condemning the world. This is it. That was all God's decision with, with how the, the plan was carried out. But what that means simply is just that Noah separated himself from the world. Um, as we're going to read soon, Actually, the whole world was, was full of evil. We're going to see that God says that himself, that the whole world is just only wicked, only evil, except for Noah and his family. And so when Noah chooses faithfulness towards God, he actually separates himself from the wickedness of the world by that condemning the world, separating himself. So it doesn't mean that he is, he's the king and that he, he's holding the God card in this time. He simply is just separating himself from the wickedness of the world and following Yahweh. So these are the two words. The first word for fear that we find here in this passage, where it says reverent fear here in Hebrews 11, it's a Hebrew word that is eulabiomai. Somebody say eulabiomai. All right. Um, this word literally translated, this tripped me out, guys. This word literally translated means anxiety and caution. Anxiety and caution. It's pretty wild. This isn't just, I'm, I'm kind of scared. This is, I'm stressed out. So Noah, in reverent anxiety and stress, built an ark to save his family. This changes the dynamic of the story a little bit. But there's another one that I, that I started thinking about as I was praying and thinking about this, this other word of fear that's the fear of the Lord that we hear a lot. We see it in Scripture. We see it in Psalm 19, and that word is yaira. You guys say yaira. It's a little easier. I thought you guys would enjoy that one. Yaira is extreme or awesome respect or honor. It's like you are, I am so crazy about who you are because you're just so incredible. I have the utmost respect for you. You've demonstrated so much goodness and kindness, all of who God is, and I just respect you so much, and I just want to honor you. I fear you. I honor you. It is not this, I'm terrified, I'm weak, and you're strong, and I'm low, and I'm tiny, and you're huge. It's I just have so much. You are amazing, awesomely amazing. Does that make sense to you guys? This fear word isn't that we're terrified, but we're actually respectful. 
So I'm sitting here trying to put these things together, and then I go, okay, well, then what is reverent anxiety? What is reverent fear? That doesn't make any sense. It's like you basically took the two fear words and put them together. It's like a respected, that word revere, where we revere the scriptures, or we revere God. We respect him. We, it's like a deep understanding and respect of who God is. I deeply respectful anxiety. What? I just couldn't comprehend what this was meaning. But then I finally got this, this image in my head as I was thinking about it. I don't know how many of you guys remember learning how to swim, but I started learning how to swim probably when I was six or seven years old. I learned a little later on, and I just remember being so afraid of the water as a little kid. I mean, you're so small. The pool is massive. There's no one in there, and you are just, it is a life or death situation in your mind. And I, I remember getting that pool with this guy. He's like probably 12 or 13 years old. He was older than me, and his name was Thomas, and, and he was the guy who was going to teach me how to swim. And, and there's this moment where I get in the pool, and there's a genuine fear that came over me, a fear, honestly, of dying <laughs> as a little kid. I said, I'm going to get in here and drown. I'm not going to make it. And I was reading something the other day. You know, psychologists believe that the, the big reason why people learn how to swim, especially as children, is because that survival instinct kicks in. Because you get in that water, and what gets you going is you're trying to stay alive and breathe. <laughs> and they said that's actually the biggest way you learn how to swim. And after a while, you don't even think anything about it. But I remember that feeling as a little kid holding onto the edge. I'm in the deep end, and Thomas is maybe like five feet away. And he's like, just swim to me, man. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing it. But it took that moment where I'm in the middle of this fearful situation, and here's this guy, Thomas, with his arms out to me. And through that scared situation, I had nothing to hold on to. This thing was leaving because he was starting to pull me away, so I no longer can hold on to this. But all that's left is this guy named Thomas, who I had to put my faith in, who's in the middle of this water, who's going to keep me afloat. And in the middle of my fear, I had to push through and take my fear and use it to build trust into somebody else. My fear of drowning led to my faith in another man who then, over weeks and weeks, taught me how to swim. I think you guys know where I'm going with this idea of learning how to swim, but, but the, the idea, it's, it's the same thing with Peter, if you look at it. Peter, it was his fear that caused him to trust in Jesus. As Jesus is standing on the waves, Peter gets out of the boat, but for him to stay afloat, it was, I don't want to drown, and that guy's floating over the water, so I'm going to go towards him. It's this almost a common sense idea, but that we can be afraid but that in the middle of our fear, God is going to show up and he's going to provide something for us to move forward. Does that, does that make sense to you guys? And throughout all the scripture, there's, there's all of these firm lines of, of what fear is. You know, there's fear of the Lord and then there's love cast out fear. But then here in the, in the only part of scripture throughout all the Bible, right here in Hebrews 11, one time do we have almost this blurred line of fear that's reverent fear. It becomes this appropriate fear. As I was saying, it was appropriate that I would be fearful trying to learn how to swim. Because without that fear, I wouldn't have wanted to stay afloat so badly. If I just didn't care, I'd sink to the bottom like a rock. But because I care and I want to stay alive, I'm going to start kicking and doing whatever I need to do to move forward. That fear propelled me forward. That fear kept me afloat. That fear kept me going and taught me how to swim. But in this one part, I feel like Noah has sort of the same thing. You see, God's call to Noah was that I want you to build this boat because I'm about to destroy the whole earth and I want your family to survive. That's horrifying. I mean, we just watched here this past week between 
us in Korea signing, signing something that's going to keep peace from nuclear war, but God said, there's no peace summit. This is it. This is the end. I'm flooding the whole thing. You need to build a boat in order to save your family. Horrifying. But that sense of fear did what? It led him to be obedient, but it also led him to provide for his family and to move forward in faith, and it ends up building his faith to be obedient. There's something about that reverent fear that propels us, moves us forward. And at times, fear is needed in order for us to, to survive. And just like I said, it, it was Peter's fear that led him to be faithful. It was Peter's fear that pushed him to go towards Christ in the water. And as we've been talking about, you know, why Noah? So why is Noah in the hall of faith? It's not just because he built a boat and that's really cool. That's not all it was. But he's there because of his obedience, because he said yes. Noah's fear is what drove him towards obedience. His fear created his trust, and his trust led him towards his obedience. This is why he's regarded as a man of faith. Not only in Hebrews 11, but Genesis 6, we see that God even looks at Noah, and he says, you are a faithful man. This is Genesis 6, verses 7 through 9. It says, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Just to clarify that, God doesn't make mistakes. So don't read that and go, ah, God regretted something. Gotcha. That's not what it is. That word sorry is, is depressed. I am depressed. I am deeply saddened by what's going on because God created humanity to do life with him, to create with him, to cultivate with him. And what man did was turn his back on him. God's creation quit on God. And he was heartbroken. Deeply depressed. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. And what's this last part say? Noah did what with God? He walked with God, right? Again, I talked about it earlier. There's this step-by-step -step process we have with the Lord that we don't have to do this alone, that everything we go through, everything experience can be met with Jesus, that what we go through, he's going through as well. When he says, place my yoke upon you, that yoke is us literally hitched in with Jesus. And he wants to walk, he wants to experience, he wants to encounter, he wants to cry, he wants, he wants to go through all of it with us. And Noah was doing that. Noah walked with God. For Noah, fear was required in order to fulfill the task ahead. Without his fear of the future, Noah wouldn't have believed God, causing him to doubt what he had said. This is key right here, and this, and this is the transition I'm going to make when we start talking about this word fear, finding the root of really what fear is. When we confuse fear with doubt, we begin to mistake whose voice we're actually listening to. I think fear and doubt are two very different things that we very often can, can confuse the two. A lot of times we think it's fear, and we like to blame fear for what's going on, but actually it's just doubt. If you look back in the garden with Adam and Eve, the very first sin ever committed was an ordeal of mistrust and doubt. The serpent looked at Adam and Eve and said, he's holding out on you. He, he, he hasn't given you everything that he's promised. Uh, he doesn't really care. He kind of just wants the Lord authority over you. But if you eat this tree, everything will be great. You'll be just like him. And that caused them to doubt his heart for them. Well, maybe he isn't. But another important piece here is do you notice who's in the picture, who's in the scene when the serpent is speaking lies? God's not anywhere. Why is it that Adam and Eve found themselves away from the Lord, listening to lies? 
Why is it that they found themselves in the dark, hiding their nakedness when God wasn't around? There's something that happens when you're alone. There's something that happens when you're isolated that causes you to doubt. And that's really where, where we're going to be today, that, that it's not about us having fear. Fear is not the bad thing. God can handle fear. And he can handle doubt, but doubt is a choice. And when we decide that we're, gonna, we're not going to believe what he says, and when we decide that we're not going to trust who he is and his heart, his character, that's our decision. And God's so good that he doesn't make us like robots just to listen to him, but he gives us free will. And so when we say no, he says, okay, no. There's a, there's a heavy weight to doubt. There's a heavy, a, a heavy thought when, that, you, that you can give to this word doubt that really starts to affect your mind. And, and when you start to just doubt what he's saying again and doubt what he's done, even looking back what God continually called the Israelites to do, he said, look back and remember. Why? Probably because they started to doubt and they actually did. The Old Testament is full of doubting. Israelites over and over again. Maybe he's not. Where is he now? He's not doing this. Blah, blah, blah. And then God's like, I like split the ocean for you. Did you forget that? They're like, right, gotcha. I'm good. They finally remember and their doubt goes away and the trust is back in. And with Peter, it was faith that got him out of the boat. It's the same thing. It was fear that caused Peter to trust, but it was doubt that made him fall. You guys remember that part in the story? We talk about Peter's faith getting out of the boat, but we tend to forget the part where he starts to drown a little because he took his eyes off of Jesus. He started to doubt what was going on. He saw the waves crashing. He saw the storm around him, and he started to doubt. He started to fear and doubt. His fear turned into doubt in that moment. At times, fear is appropriate, but doubt never is. Matthew 21, 21 says this, And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you'll not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Fear can lead us into trust with the one who casts out all fear. The issue isn't that we ourselves are going to not be scared. God can take care of the fear. We keep trying to put it in our own hands and take, it, and take our own initiative to say, I'm going to do this my way. I'm going to handle it the way that I do it because it's my thing. I'm not scared. I'm not afraid. You are. And God knows that too. But if we bring that to him, that's when he starts to change things. That's when the tides start to change. That's when we start to see everything around us start to change. So Noah was found blameless in all these things, according to Genesis 6. His faith led him into new promise and new covenant with the Lord. So I'm going to read this. This is a pretty big portion, but it's crucial to his story, um, Noah's story, and his part of the narrative here in Hebrews. This is Genesis 9, 8 through 17. It says, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. This is after they've landed. So the, the floods already happened. The world's been wiped clean. And Noah and his family have now landed on dry land. And they've just come out of the boat. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you. 
that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. See, Noah was supposed to be this redemptive line. See, because of Adam and Eve's sin, they were, they were hoping it was Cain, and then it wasn't Cain. And then here comes Noah, and Noah's the new guy. He's like, this is going to be the Savior. This is going to be the guy who's going to fix it. Everyone's putting their faith in him. Everyone's believing it, meaning just his family. And they're just saying, we're going to make things right. We're going to do things well. God reestablishes his covenant that he made to Adam and Eve with Noah. He starts to say here in a moment, be fruitful, multiply, cultivate the earth. Let's do this thing. Let's do it right this time. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that, that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. That bow in the clouds is just a rainbow for those of you that don't. Um, know that. When the bows in the clouds, I will see it. Remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So real quick, uh, if you guys are familiar with the book of Genesis, Noah's story is the longest in the book of Genesis. It covers three whole chapters in the book of Genesis. And I want to point out something really crucial. Up to this point, have we heard Noah say a word? Noah's been quiet the whole time. Sounds like me. <laughs> uh, you can ask Oliver and you can ask Chris. Whenever uh, there is a change in plan or you can even ask my wife if there's ever something we're doing spontaneously or that I wasn't planning for, I get really quiet and my answers always get really short. Timothy, you good with that? Mm-hmm. Yep. How are you feeling, man? Great awesome. Great, man. And that's been like my whole life. I, I, because of that internal processor in me, I, I don't want to say what I'm feeling. I'm scared I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings or do something wrong. And that's my biggest struggle. And here, I read through his whole story in all three chapters. And it isn't until near the end of chapter nine that we actually hear Noah say a word. Now, Noah's been given a heavy, heavy call He's been given a heavy burden. He had to build this huge boat with his family, gathering these animals, providing food and space, and, and even going through this 40-day, 40 40-night 40 storm, listening as people honestly are dying all around him. And Noah hasn't said a word. It's like watching someone go through a car crash and then saying, and like they're they're just not talking. It's concerning right? When someone isn't speaking, when something traumatic has happened. This is traumatic. It's why we, we have soldiers go through counseling and intense counseling because they go through traumatic experiences. Victims of awful crimes go through these things and there's this time taken to get them to talk just so they can be healthy because when we don't talk and when we don't communicate, things get really bad. And I think we've all been there, yeah? We've been there where we, we didn't talk. We've been there where we didn't communicate what we're feeling, what we're thinking. I can't tell you the tough lesson I've had to learn, that when I don't communicate my frustrations or, or my confusion to my wife, how bad it gets later. And not her to me, me. Because when I don't talk, someone's going to get the wrath, you know, because that stuff bottles up. We all know that. It bottles up inside of you. And Noah, for this entire, at least from what we know, 
He could have said stuff in the ark or could have said stuff to his family, but when it was him and God, and God said to Noah, God said to Noah, God said to Noah, and God said to Noah. And all there is at the end of 6 and 7 and 8, and Noah did as he was commanded. Noah was a yes man. You got it, God, got it. Yeah, sure, no problem, man, I got it. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Got any thoughts, Noah? You okay, man? <laughs> I just had such a discomfort for him. Just Is he okay? So like I said, Noah never speaks a word. And this is the first time we hear Noah speak out here in Genesis 9, 20 through 27. So Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. You guys remember Cain was a man of the soil? Just thought it was an interesting, interesting point here. He drank of the wine, and he became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So this is uh, the first thing we hear from Noah. Noah gets drunk, wakes up, realizes his kids saw him naked, and literally has a meltdown and curses his, his son's offspring. I think it's like a first impression for me. <laughs> I'm going... Wait, that's what you said? That's the first thing you said? There's something here, and, and, and I'm going to say this before I continue. This is a very controversial passage. So many scholars believe so many things about this situation. Um, one of the arguments is that for his son, Ham, to see his father's nakedness was a sin. And that why Noah gets so angry and curses him. It's a right thing. Noah should be angry because it was wrong for him to see his father's nakedness. But I went and did some research, and I realized but this, this is new, this is the, like the first kind of settlement of God that we hear of, and this is before, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is before the law has ever been set. There is no law about seeing your father naked, not that I can find. So I'm going, okay, but maybe that was it. Maybe Noah had a right breakdown. And the other argument is that Ham went and badmouthed his dad to his brothers and made fun of him. I'm like, I didn't say that. Did it? Like, did I miss something? I read it like seven times, 12 different translations. Never does it said, and Ham went outside and made fun of his dad. Could it be possible that maybe Ham is innocent in all of this? Could it be that his father and his drunken stupor just had a breakdown and went off on Ham? And could it be possible that maybe his father had spent all this time, I believe they were in the water for 120, 150 days, just floating around, that his father for months didn't communicate his anxiety, didn't communicate his stress, didn't communicate his fear, didn't communicate his worry, his, his burden that he was carrying. Could it be that and maybe he just got home, got drunk, and then flipped out on his kids? Are you guys hearing what I'm saying this morning? Maybe it was the fact that Noah did something wrong. Is <laughs> the bottom line I'm trying to say. And not that I want to point out this man's faults. It's not what I want to do. He's in the hall of faith. He's one of the most obedient 
men in all of Scripture. He's known as the, the solitary saint, the lonely saint. He was the only one found faithful to God. But here in this moment, he, he doesn't deal with his issues, he doesn't deal with his problems, and he flips out on his family. And this had deep consequence. If you guys are familiar with that word Canaan, Canaan then gets split, goes on, makes his own land, starts his own community, his own people, that later God would call the Israelites to go take that land to become the promise. That was the promised land, the land of Canaan. So hadn't known it, now God's sovereign, I'm not going to not argue that. God is sovereign. He made a plan and he made the most out of it. He made something incredible out of it. But could it be said that maybe if Noah hadn't have cursed his child, maybe the Israelites wouldn't have had to do all that? Maybe Egypt wouldn't have happened? Maybe the journey through the desert would have been a lot shorter? And the bottom line is God honors Noah's word. We all know Spider-Man, right? With great power comes what? Great responsibility. Noah has authority. God trusts him. And even in his mistake, God honors his curse of his son. We carry this authority with our words. We, we carry this authority, not just in the kingdom, but here on earth with our family, with people around us. We, our words carry weight. Oliver said this a long time ago, that our words create worlds. We, we make a space with what we say. And I just find it so interesting that, that Noah, in the hall of faith, somehow, some reason, ends up cursing his children, breaking them, splitting them in half, and now causes the Israelites to spend 40 years in a desert wandering till they can finally find the land that was promised to them. That's a heavy weight that a man in his drunken state just said flippant words that had very heavy consequences. And I feel like this, again, I've said it before, but this is just a repeat of the sins of Eve, the sin of Cain. All of these characters, they spent their time in isolation. They decided to do things alone, not to talk, not to communicate. Had Cain just gone to God and went to him as a counselor and just said, man, I'm so mad. Like, why didn't you take my offering and cried and screamed and whatever? Maybe there would have been peace. Maybe if Eve hadn't listened to the serpent, but gone back and talked to God and said, this is what this guy said. Is it true? Maybe it would have never happened. And again, I know God's sovereign. I know that he has a bigger plan. And he did work everything out for our good and for his glory. He did. And he's still doing that today. But it doesn't negate the mistakes. And I'm not here to dwell on mistakes and say they messed up. Make sure they know they messed up. I don't want to do that. But I just found it super interesting that all of these sins were committed in isolation. Noah was known for his obedience, but what he lacked was community and communication. It's in isolation that we break. It's when we're alone that the enemy attacks the hardest. The line of fear that we walk is a thin one. It takes discipline and steadfastness to walk that line of fear. Noah's fear led him towards obedience, but it deferred him from community. All Noah had to do was just say a word to communicate, say something. He didn't have to deal with that anxiety on his own. He didn't have to deal with the burden on his own. He could have gone to the comforter. He could have gone to Abba, Daddy, Father. He could have gone to the Prince of Peace. Peace that goes beyond all of our understanding. Peace that we can't comprehend. He could have gone there, but he didn't. 
He did it on his own by himself. So for us this morning, you guys might be thinking, geez, Timothy, well, what now, man? <laughs> it's pretty dark and grim. Here is the, the challenge and the charge. And the worship team, you guys can come on back up if you're ready to go. The charge I want to leave with you guys in this, this sweet invitation is what it is. And we all know this passage, but really to, to break this down, this is Philippians 4, 5 through, through 7. It says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That word at hand means he's near, he's close. It's not just the Lord is coming one day. The Lord is, he's close to you. He's near to you. Scripture says he's near to the brokenhearted. The Lord is at hand, so do not be anxious about anything. He's with you, he's close to you, so don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. These are just three things that I want to share with you. First one, just pray about everything. Things can seem silly, they can seem stupid to us, they can seem dumb, they can seem small, but everything matters to God. People can look at us and say, man, you're overreacting, or man, you're being overanxious, or whatever, you're stressing out for no reason, but we can take it to God and he'll take it seriously. So my first invitation is to pray about everything, absolutely everything in your life. The second is ask for what you need. That's supplication, asking for what we need. Emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Everything matters. So ask about it. Ask what you need. What do you need? Ask about it from God. He'll give it to you. And we all know that need is different from want, right? God, I want a million dollars. And the last one is be thankful and remember. And be thankful isn't that, you know, the dad that grew up in like hard knocks and earned everything he ever made. He's like, be thankful for what you have. But it's just be thankful for what's around you. Let's not dwell on the negative. Let's not dwell on the bad. Deal with it. But look around and see what good you have in your life. Look at your family. Look at your friends. In a pretty small way, look at the food in front of you. Look at the clothes on your back and be thankful and like I said before, the Israelites, God would constantly say, hey, remember, remember, remember that I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember when I gave you food in the desert. Remember when I did this. He, he would constantly call them to remember. And as soon as they would, the trust would pour back in. The doubt would flee and the trust would pour in. Be founded in your remembrance. Be founded in your thanksgiving. I told you guys about finding out about Nora, that we were pregnant. And the specific thing that God said to me, see, there's this long story, I'm not going to get into it, but there was a moment where my wife, she prayed for, in, the, in our prayer room on Thursday nights, she, she prayed for healing for her body. We believed that there was, um, there was something bad in her body that was going to keep her from bearing children. And we prayed over her that night. Chris was there, I was there, we prayed over her. And we believed that she was healed. And this was before we were married. And so we didn't think anything about it. Um, if you do the math correctly, we got pregnant a week after we got married, which can be funny and can be, you know, kind of stressful. But when I heard 
that we were pregnant, I was reminded by the Lord of that moment. And he said, I'm, I'm doing something great again. There was a miracle happening inside of my wife. And I look at that miracle every day today. And so when I feel pressure, when I fear, I remember that all of this isn't in my hands, that I don't have control, but I take comfort in that I don't need control. None of us need control. We want it, but we don't need it because we don't know what to do with it if we had it. But God has it. It's elementary, but it's got the whole world in his hands, right? I'm going to pray for you guys. If you guys would stand as we continue to worship, I'm just going to pray. Lord, I thank you for a man like Noah. I thank you for his faithfulness to you. I thank you for how he obeyed you, even when it was hard and when it didn't make sense. He sought you for your truth and he sought you for your guidance. For all of us in this room, Lord, we're, I, I do sense that we, we do feel pressure from time to time. We're human beings. We have to. Life is hard. Work is hard. Family is hard. It's difficult. It's all fun and it's all exciting, but it's hard. And that's okay. Lord, teach us in the midst of our fear, in the midst of our worry, in the midst of our stress. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to just open our hands up to you. Help us to cast our cares upon you because you care about us. Grant us strength to be obedient today. Obedience comes from listening, Lord, and we want to be listening today. We want to be listening to your voice. Your voice is the only one we want to hear. Your voice doesn't doubt. Your voice isn't afraid. Your voice isn't unsure, but it is true. It is solid. It is a firm foundation. And we want to follow that voice. And as we worship now, Lord, we are surrendering who we are to you. We're giving up who we, who we thought we were in controlling ourselves, controlling our lives. We don't hold the narrative. You do. And we're trusting that it's a good narrative. We're trusting your provision. We're trusting in your goodness this morning. We will not walk with our fear today, but we will take our fear with us to your presence. In your presence is fullness of joy, and that's where the fear is dissipated. Our fear turns into faith. I heard that in the song the other day. It said, you turn our fear into faith. Our fear is transformed in your name. You came to make all things new. You make our fear into faith. Thank you for that, God. We love you. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please let us know by leaving feedback on our iTunes podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. Thanks for exalting Jesus with us.